You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Revelation 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I knew you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my, ma- my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have against you, you hate, or yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Father, we pause again and we ask that you would check our motivations this morning. Motivations for why I'm speaking. Father, what lies behind this sermon in my heart? What lies behind the hearts of the people that are here today who've chosen to come? For those, Father, who are tuning in online, Father, we recognize that everything lays bare before you. There's nothing hidden. We may put on a mask when we face each other, but there is no mask that we can put on that hides who we really are from you. Father, the beautiful thing about that is, is that in all of our brokenness, in all of our failures, we don't have to run and hide like Adam and Eve did. Because you already know. And not only do you already know, but you have what our heart desires most. Well, I believe that everyone in this room and everyone watching online truly desires to be loved. And Lord, your love is a love that is unconditional. So Father, I pray that this morning we would examine our own hearts. It would be really easy to look at someone else today, to point fingers at someone else, I pray, Father, that we would listen to the Holy Spirit this morning and be obedient. That we would accept the truth that you have to share with us this morning through your word. We ask all this in the powerful name of Christ, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. The one who provided justification through his death, through his shed blood, our resurrected King. We ask this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to ask you to turn over to John chapter 5. Just hold your place in Revelation and then go to John 5. The reason I want to go to John 5 is I want to kind of frame where we're going today with with a story in Jesus' life. And this is a story that comes up often in the Gospels. Oftentimes we'll find Jesus walking towards, walking with, even having dinner with broken people. It's it's almost like Jesus had this, well, obviously being God and man, he could just see the brokenness in people's lives. And this story in John 5 is is one of those stories where Jesus is going to heal a man. There's a man there, and he's at 
these pools of Bethesda. We don't know a lot about this historically. We just know that there was some pools of water there. They were covered by covers. And we know that, that a lot of people who were sick and lame and, and needed healing would gather at these pools. And, and there was a rumor that was going around, and we don't know whether this was true or false or what, but these people certainly believe that these waters had specific healing properties and that when the water was troubled and they could either see it because they had vision and could see the water being troubled or when they would hear it or experience it, if they could get into these pools, uh, that they could be healed of whatever infirmity they had. Well, well, Jesus just happened to be in this area and he sees a guy there. And by the way, the, the text tells us in John 5, I'm not going to read all of it, that, that there were a lot of people there who were broken, a lot of people who were sick, a lot of people who were blind and lame and I imagine just having to walk over these people because in this same area is a marketplace. And this would have been a marketplace that the Pharisees and the religious rulers would have frequented often. But on this day, Jesus is there and he sees a guy who's been lame for 38 years. And he's been laying at this pool day after day after day after day. Who knows how long he's been there? Maybe there's times he was left there all night. Maybe other times there were people who would bring him there and just sit him down and he would stay there all day. Hoping that someone would come by and just help him to get into the water at the right time because he didn't have the ability to get in the water. And Jesus sees this guy when quite frankly nobody else saw him. When nobody else cared about him. When more than likely these religious rulers, these same ones that are around and, and see what happens here, no doubt these same religious rulers would step over men like him. Because you see, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious rulers would look, that, look at that guy and you know what they would say? This guy is lame because he had sinned. Or his family had sinned. He's getting his just deserves and they would walk right by him. But not Jesus, not on this day. On this day, Jesus heals the man. Now, Jesus doesn't reveal his identity. The, the chapter tells us that the man goes on his way, but here's what happens. He, he picks up his mat after he's been healed, after he's able to walk. He picks up his mat, and he, he begins to walk away. Well, it's at that point the Pharisees notice him, and this is how it works, folks. You can always tell the legalist in the room. You can always tell the person who well, is looking down on others. They haven't noticed him while he was poor. They haven't noticed him while he was lame. They haven't noticed him while he's sitting by the pool of water just needing somebody's help. They didn't notice him on that day, but on the day he picks up his mat after he's been healed, after being lame for 38 years, and he's walking through the streets, oh, now we're going to pay attention to him because now he's broke the law. You see, it just happened to be the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. We see this over and over again in the Gospels, where the Sabbath comes up. Jesus is accused and eventually will lead to his crucifixion because they say he's blasphemed. Now, part of that is because in that very chapter, he makes the claim that he's equal with God, of course. That's his identity. And his miracles and his teaching prove out the fact that he's more than just a man. And by the way, he is more than just a man. Amen. He's God in the flesh. And he heals this man, but he does it on the Sabbath day. And the religious rulers get really upset, and they question the man, who healed you? At the time, he didn't know who it was. Eventually, he comes back, and he runs into Jesus, and Jesus reveals his identity. He goes back and tells the religious rulers, it was Jesus Christ. He's the one who healed me. 
And all through the Gospels, I find this over and over again. You'll find it again over in John 9 when Jesus heals a guy who's, been, who's blind. Instead of the Pharisees and the religious rulers who know God's word and know the text, they know it well, that you're to love God first and most and love neighbor itself. They knew that. They've already heard Jesus teach that, that all of the law and all of the commandments can be hung upon that phrase, loving God and loving neighbor. Yet in that particular area where those pools were, they had no problem walking right over their neighbor. But let him break the law. Now we're interested. Now we want to know about it. So Jesus, in this chapter, as he's confronted yet again with these religious rulers who are claiming that he is breaking God's law, and therefore there's no way he could be God, no way God would break his own laws, and there's no way that this guy, the guy claiming to be God is anything more than just a, well, he's a charlatan, he's, he's a threat. So Jesus, in this chapter, we're not going to go through all just one verse I really want you to see, because he calls this what it is. Now, in this chapter, he talks about how that he is equal with God and that he is come to this world to seek and to save, and he talks about John the Baptist and John's role in Jesus' ministry, but look at verse 41. He says, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. The Pharisees who knew the Old Testament, like the back of their hand. And inside that law, the law had told them that they were to care for people just like this lame guy. But what had happened over time is they had taken the law and elevated it to such a degree, and had added to it to such a degree that nobody was able to keep the law, especially them, but, but they had all the power, you see. They had all of the influence. And they were very good at pointing out the faults of everyone else. One of the reasons they hated Jesus so much is because he called them out. And in this moment, he says, I know your hearts, and you have no love. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is writing these letters, providing these letters for John. John is writing them. And John is going to provide these letters to the seven churches. And the first church that we're going to interact with is the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was planted by none other than the Apostle Paul. You go to Acts chapter 19, his third missionary journey, and you see Paul in Ephesus. Now, I have a kind of an opinion here that, that Paul loved the church of Ephesus. Now, Paul loved all of his churches. Don't get me wrong. It's not that he favored one over the other, but but when Paul looked at Ephesus, he saw tremendous opportunity. He saw an opportunity to touch a lot of lives with the gospel because this city had about a quarter of a million people in it. And it would go up and down, but at the highest point, probably about a quarter of a million people. And the interesting thing about Ephesus is that people were traveling from all over the Roman Empire to see Ephesus. Now, why were they traveling there? Well, first of all, it's a bustling city, a lot to see and do. But there was one thing particular that people were coming to see. And in the center of the city, there was this massive temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Artemis, or Diana. And this temple housed a false god. 
And this particular temple was 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet tall. It had 127 columns around the outside of it, and each one of those columns was four feet thick. So when you walked into the city of Ephesus, no matter where you looked, you could see the temple of Diana. It was amazing. So they had gardens around it. It was beautiful. It was an incredible work of architecture in its day. The only thing that remains today is a couple of columns. That's all that remains and a little bit of a foundation. But in that day, it was a powerful, beautiful, amazing sight. But people were just coming to see the temple. You see, they were coming to see the worship connected with the God in the temple. Artemis. Because you see, connected to the worship of this goddess was all kinds of sexual immorality. I said this morning, first service, I could kind of equate this. If you could take Las Vegas, cast off any kind of laws or restrictions in Las Vegas. I mean, they're pretty close there now. I've never been, but I've heard. But any laws they've got, if you just get rid of all of those concerning sexuality and public decency, if you just got rid of all of them in Vegas, what would Vegas look like? Well, a lot like Ephesus. And Ephesus looks a lot like Vegas. So people were coming from all over to not only participate in the worship of this goddess, but to participate in the worship of this goddess, which included all kinds of sexual deviancy. If you walked out of the church of Ephesus, out into the street, you could see it. That's how prevalent it was. When we look at the New Testament, we look at cultures, the culture of Corinth and the culture of Ephesus was probably two cultures that was as much like our culture today as far as sexual deviancy as we can find anywhere in Scripture. Folks, you've got to understand there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, what we're seeing today is just a re, well, a recycling of what's happened in the past. So we have this church in this area, and they are reaching people with the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus. He saw it as a strategic place for a church because so many people were there. He also saw the community is broken and that the only way that they could find hope is through the gospel. So eventually, Paul would send his son in the faith, Timothy, to be the pastor of this church. Eventually, John makes, him way, makes his way there and works there and serves there. But this church that we're going to look at, there's some things that they're doing quite well. As a matter of fact, some of the things we're going to point out, you might even want to be part of this church because they have some great things happening in this church. But there was something missing. You know, a spouse can be faithful, provide for the home, right? Uh, the husband can, can provide and take care of the yard and everything, and the wife can provide and work and take care of the home, take care of the kids, and together they can do life together, and they can raise kids together, and they can have a home together. But if this thing is missing, if this element is missing, everybody knows that it's missing. You can have someone who attends church faithfully, serves, gets involved, but Jesus is going to tell us if this one ingredient is missing, he's going to, in fact, say you don't have a church. So let's take a look at what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Last week I said that when John sees Jesus, 
There's this imagery that he reports to us, and, and we're going to see that imagery through all seven of these letters. It's interesting that, that what John saw in that moment with Jesus, when he turned and saw him, and he describes what he saw, those elements are going to be included in each of these seven letters. And the first thing that we see is the seven stars, which we said last week represents angels. Now, we said that it could represent the preachers of the church, the messengers in the church, or angels. And I, I tend to lean towards the idea that these are actual angels. Does that mean that every church has angels assigned to it? I don't know. Maybe. Apparently here, these angels were integral to parts of what was going on in the church. The other part of this is that Jesus says here that he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. And I said last week that Zechariah chapter 4 talks about how the lampstands kind of represented God's eyes looking at his people. But also last week, Jesus told us what these lampstands represent. They represent the churches. So if we put those two things together, and I said last week that we are going to be blown away by these letters, and one day when we stand before Jesus, of just how much he knows about your life, just how much he knows about your service in the local church, that Jesus is not off-running the universe, that he is, he is intimately involved with the church, his body, and what it's doing. He knows about the decisions we're making and why we're making them. He knows why you're here today. He knows what's really driving you and being part of this fellowship. So Jesus knows his churches, and we're going to see that over and over again as we see what he has to say to these churches. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works. That should make us pause. First of all, that Jesus knows what's happening in his churches. He knows. He knows why we're doing what we're doing. But for this church, he says, I know your works. Jesus is going to commend this church because they're doing some some things that are just, just wonderful. They're, they're, they're doing some things that, quite frankly, would make me want to be part of a church just like this. First of all, you need to know they were diligent. He says, I know your work, and some of your translations may say deeds. Here's the reality. This was a busy church. They were working. They were, they were busy. If you, could, if you could look into this church, there's a whole lot of activity. They were living in a very active community. You got thousands of people packing the streets. This church was busy about the ministry that, that Paul had instilled in the elders, and those elders had passed down to a new generation. Forty years has passed since the time that Paul planted this church till the time that Jesus is writing this letter, John is writing this letter to the church. Forty years have passed. A whole other generation has kind of taken the reins of leadership, and they're doing a pretty good job. They're busy. They're staying focused on what what there be about. He says, I know your works. He says, I also know your toil. You see that word toil? It indicates hardship. So on the one hand, this church is, is busy, but the things they're busy about is bringing hardship into their lives. If you remember, John said, as we looked at that text last week, John said to this church, he says, look, I'm your brother in tribulation. Because of the Roman Empire, because of the hatred that is growing across the Roman Empire for Christianity, this church was suffering because of the work it was doing. He says, I know your toil. I know the tears you're shedding. I know the, hard, the hardships. I know the pain. I know the hurts that you're experiencing. No doubt, this church was not very well accepted in the community of Ephesus. So this church is being attacked from the outside. This church, this church is being hated from the outside and Jesus says, I know what you're going through. He says, I also know of your patient endurance. He says, I know you're persevering. 
Here's a church that just refused to give up. Here's a church that says, we're going to stand right here on the truth of God's word and we're not moving off of it. And it doesn't matter what comes from the outside. It doesn't matter what they say about us. It doesn't matter what they do. We are going to stand right here. Sounds like a church I'd want to be part of. Solid in the truth. Persevering even under hardships, under pain, difficulty. He says, I know your patient endurance, look at this, and, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Not only are they diligent, not only are they toiling under hardship and persevering in the faith, but they are a disciplined church. They're disciplined in the fact that they know what is true, and they know the difference between a lie and the truth, and they also are holding their congregation accountable. They're saying, Jesus says, I've recognized that you are not bearing up with those who are evil. In other words, you're just not putting up with the evil that is trying to creep into your church. So for this church, reaching people in Ephesus, when those people would come into the church, when maybe they made a profession of faith in Jesus, they're still carrying some baggage from Ephesus. And what would happen in this church is those people begin to get rather loud about what they believed was true. You begin to get factions within the church. As a matter of fact, Paul told the elders of this church in Acts 20. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and he, he wanted to go to Ephesus. He couldn't, so he meets the elders at Miletus, and he sits down with them, and he says to them, he says, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm concerned for your church, because I'm concerned that there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing that come into the congregation and devour the flock. So he tells those elders, make sure you stay focused. Don't lose your focus because the culture that that church is in is trying to flip that church, trying to flip it to things that Jesus says are wrong. Take your stand. And they did. This church is willing to ask people to leave because of the sin and evil in their life that they would not repent of. Look what he says. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Not only do they have discipline, but they're also discerning. This would be the church that if you say something or teach something or, or begin to live in a way that is not faithful to the word, even though you claim to know Christ, but yet you're living in a way that is completely opposite of what God's word says, this church was the church that would come to you and say, hey, what's going on? There were a group of people that was kind of rising up in the church. Timothy had to deal with this as well when he was pastor. False apostles. There were people who were making truth claims inside the church. They were not truthful at all. They were lying. And this church, being disciplined and discerning, questioned those who were calling themselves apostles and revealed them for who they really were. They were false. They were false apostles. They called them out, and more than likely, we don't know, asked them to leave the fellowship. Sounds like a church that's doing the right things. Sounds like a church that's taking a pretty strong stand against this culture. Not only are they discerning, but listen to this, they've got energy. They're energized. He says, I know you are enduring patiently, and listen to this, and bearing up for my name's sake. See that bearing up? It's the same bearing up where it says you're not bearing with people who teach the wrong things, but you are bearing up 
under all of the falsehoods and all of the attacks. You see, not only was this church being attacked from the outside, it's being attacked from the inside. And it would be normal for any leader in this situation dealing with the culture, dealing with leaders inside the church who are teaching the wrong things, dealing with the attacks from the outside to just simply say, I'm done, I quit, throw in the towel. But he says... He says that they were enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You see, that's surprising to me. Man, a lot. Talking about an environment where you would grow weary. Jesus says, I see your heart. And the reality is you've got energy to spare. You're ready for the fight. You're in this thing. They're not not giving up. They're not backing in. They're not acquiescing to the culture. They're taking a stand. And then if you jump down to verse 6, one more thing that Jesus mentions down here. He says, yet this you have, you hate the same thing that I hate. And it's the teachings of the Galatians. Who are these people? We'll get to them a little later. We have to cover them a little deeper in another letter. But today, here's what you need to know about this group of people. They were false teachers. Uh, apparently, they had some kind of claim to Christ as far as following him. But here's what they were doing. Inside the church, they were teaching that the church needs to cast off any restraints that it might have, especially when it comes to sexual immorality. Now get this, that's exactly what's happening in Ephesus. Ephesus is saying, don't live with any restraints. That's why thousands of people are flocking to Ephesus so they can cast off any restraint and all do it in the sake of religion, worshiping Diana. My goodness, what a What a great lie from Satan. You can live in sexual immorality and have your religion too. Does that sound sound relevant to today's culture? Are we starting to see that there's really nothing new under the sun? That is exactly what's happening today. Oh, you can have all your religion. Whatever's true for you, that's great for you. But you can also have all of this and this and this, and the two can work together, and you don't have to worry about it. That's a lie. It's a lie. These false teachers had got into the church, and that's what they were teaching. Now, it may surprise you that these words right here are the words that Jesus is speaking. And you know what Jesus says? You hate what I hate. Did you know that Jesus has some things that he hates? Oh, wait a minute. I thought he was all about love. Well, he is. And notice he doesn't say that he hates the people. But what they're teaching, he absolutely hates because it undermines what he did. It undermines what he accomplished. It undermines what he is doing in the church. And apparently, this church has stood strong against it. So if if you were to walk into this church, if you were to walk in and open up their bulletin, it'd be 11 by 17, front and back, filled with ministry opportunities and all kinds of stuff happening. They would be the church that's standing in the community. They would be the church that's that's pronouncing loudly, this is what we believe. Sounds like a church that you might want to be part of, except there's one key ingredient that's missing. And what Jesus is going to say to this church is powerful. Because the reality is, is all that they do have, all of it, all of it that they're doing, none of it matters without this ingredient. None of it. 
So you can have all of this ministry and activity and, and all of this doctrinal purity and yet be out of the will of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, quote, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse. Marie, I'm going to say that again because that's profound. He says, quote, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism, adhesion to the truth, sours into bigotry when the sweetness and the light of love to Jesus depart. My goodness, what true words. Jesus has this to say to the church at Ephesus, verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned, walked away from the love you had at first. So this church, in all of its activity, and all of its doctrinal purity, Jesus says, I've got something against you. By the way, it should, it should register in our minds that Jesus might have something against his church. And that he knows what's going on in his church, and that there might be things going on in the church that he's not pleased with. As leaders and servants of this fellowship, we might want to pay attention to that. Jesus says, you have abandoned love. I'm not going to try to defend this church, but I'm trying to understand how this church got to this point. So let me, let me tell you what I'm thinking here. This church has been attacked from the outside. There are people who hate this church because of where they stand. And that same church has been infiltrated by people with nefarious plans to undermine that church, to hopefully destroy that church. Satan is attacking this church. And what can happen when you're under that much attack, when you're having to take those stands over and over again, what can happen is over time, your heart can become rather hard and you can become cynical. The reason I think this is the case is because, folks, I have been there. I know what it's like. You can then begin to look at people with suspicion. I wonder what their angle is. I, I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder how they're going to respond. And the next thing you know, you, look, you begin to look at people not with love and care and grace and mercy, but you begin to look at people and what they're going to do to just mess up your whole day and your whole life and your whole week. Been there, folks. It's not a good place to be. And if, and if it goes unchecked long enough, your heart begins to get hard as concrete. And the real scary thing is, is that you can continue to function. You can even look like you're loving when in fact you're not. And Jesus says to this church, I've got something that's a problem for you. And it's the motivation behind your ministry. He said, I see the, the doctrinal purity and that's a good thing. But the motivation behind that is not love, it's something else. That you can be right, as far as God's word is concerned, but yet be wrong in your motivation. That you're not loving people. You're not seeking people because of love. Now, commentaries, common commentators come down in two different camps on this. They, they say, well, what love did they lose? Did they, did they lose their love for Jesus? 
Well, the commentators will say, well, yeah, look, the text says that they lost their first love. That first love today, what was that first love? Well, when they put their faith in Jesus and experienced God's love. So, so they have walked away from the love of Jesus. And then other commentators will say, well, no, no, it's not that. It's the culture they're living in and that historical background tells us that they lost love for their culture. Which is it? Well, I'm going to say both. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I've told you before that those two are connected. You can't separate the two. If your love for Jesus has grown cold, guess what happens automatically? Your love for humanity grows cold as well. But also it's true, if, I, if my love for humanity has grown cold, my love for Jesus grows cold. You see, the two are connected. They work together, and one points to a problem in the other. So I think it's both. I think, yes, they did fall out of love with Jesus. I think they have forgotten what that love was like. I think that because of the hardship and the pain and the trouble and the fighting and the standing and the being focused on doctrine and making sure they protect the body, in all of that, they forgot the love they experienced when they fell in love with Jesus. The, min- the work of the ministry has brought a coldness and a darkness and a, and a functionality. We're functioning We're functioning well, but we're not loving well. I love being around new believers. I love being around people who just begin to walk with Jesus. Man, they don't care what people think. Jesus is on their lips all the time. They're telling everybody about what they've experienced. And man, they are just wanting to learn, wanting to know more, wanting to understand God's will. They're asking deep questions. You were once like that, were you not? I hope you're still like that. But this church was once like that, and they are not like that now. He says, you've left your first love, that love that you experienced with me. You've abandoned it. You've walked away. But not only that, you no longer love your community, and I can understand that. When they looked at their community, no doubt they felt a little bit of sickness in their stomach. There are times I see stuff and experience stuff that it kind of makes me just sick. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. Not that I'm sickened by the person. Man, the choices they're making. This church had abandoned its first love, and I believe that love is love for Jesus, and I believe that love is love for the community, and probably love for one another inside the church. They've grown cold. You see, you can walk in this church, look at their bulletin, and say, wow, there's a lot going on, but you would notice that something's missing. Just like in a marriage where two people are just functioning. They're just existing. They're they're roommates who live in the same house who are raising kids together, but they're simply just functioning in the same house. There's something missing. What is it? Functionally, we are strong, but love, we are cold. You know that something's not right. This church, something's not right. But not only did they walk away from love, but look at verse 5. It says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Not only have they abandoned the love, but they've abandoned it long enough they don't even remember what it's like. And again, marriages have become some of the same problem. We, that, that, that love, again, I've told you before that your, your best friends didn't tell you this. When you fell in love with your spouse, the person you're married to, or the person maybe you're in love with now, maybe you're not married yet, but that person you're in love with now, you may not know this, but your friends got sick and tired of you hearing you talk about that person all the time. They just didn't tell you. 
Is that the kind of love you have for them today? To take that over to the church, the love you experienced, that newness of salvation, that new birth, and that love relationship of just walking with Jesus. You remember that you could, you could pray, and man, it just seemed like your prayers were being answered all around you. All of a sudden, you have a concern for other people where you'd never had that before. You never even saw other people. You didn't care about other people. You could walk right by other people. You didn't care. But when Jesus changed your life, not only did you love Jesus, but now, for some unexplicable reason, you actually care about other people, other human beings. You never even saw them before. Is that who you are today? Not only had they abandoned love, but they'd forgotten what love was. So Jesus says to them, hey, there's a pathway back. This is where the grace comes in. Listen, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how cold and indifferent your heart, even if you're far from Jesus, you never put your faith in him, there's a pathway to restoration, to new life, to purpose. Jesus is gonna tell this church, hey, you've grown cold and indifferent, but you don't have to stay there. Listen, you can be addicted to alcohol, but you don't have to stay there. Your marriage is broken, but it doesn't have to remain there. You, you have given your life over to sexual immorality. You don't even know who you are anymore. You're looking for love in all the wrong places, and the thing, the way you're defining love is not how God's Word defines it, and you're coming up empty over and over and over again. Listen, there's another pathway. There's another, there's another way to live. Jesus says to this church, hey, there's another way. He says, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. In other words, look back to what it used to be and look at where you are now. And as you see the difference, repent. That word simply means to have a change of mind that turns into a change of heart. I see the difference. Lost person, you look at your life now and you're not God, you don't have any purpose or joy. You don't have any peace in your life. And you're hearing about a king who can give you that, and you're contrasting the two, and you come to a point where you say, I want that more than what I have now. A change of mind, which then leads to a change of heart. It says, I'm putting my faith in Jesus, and I'm walking away from all this other mess. For those of you who put your faith in Jesus, you look back and you say, man, I used to have a walk that was vibrant. I used to could hear from Jesus. I used to could pray, and it seemed like my prayers mattered, but not anymore. Well, guess what? Maybe you've abandoned love. He says, repent, change your mind, change your heart. Do the works that you did in first. In other words, come back to me. But notice this. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Just like what we see in the minor and major prophets. We, we see the prophets speaking on behalf of God, and, and he says to the people who've wandered away from God's law and God's purpose, he says, okay, here's what you've done wrong. Here's what you're up to. Here, here's, here's what God sees in your life. Now, return, repent. God will restore. God will heal. God will forgive. But you must turn. You must admit your failures. You must see God in all of his glory and see that you want him and his purposes more than what you have. But if you fail to do that, well, there's going to be there's going to be some problems if you choose not to repent. He says that I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place. If the lampstand represents Jesus' presence among his church, and the church is called by Jesus to be a light to the world, get this. Jesus says, I'll remove 
your lampstand. I will remove your influence. I will remove your power. I will remove your influence as a church in the community. And folks, all across America, all across America, there are churches that once stood for the truth and loved their communities well, but no longer. They've acquiesced to the culture. They've decided that they've got to become like the world to do something in the world. And so therefore, all across America, Jesus has pulled back from those churches because in those churches, there's no joy. There's no love. They haven't seen a move of the Holy Spirit alone. They don't even know what it looks like. If the Holy Spirit was to move in that place, it'd scare them to death because they don't even know what it's like. It's a work of man, not a work of God. Nobody's been baptized. No lives have been changed. No addictions have been broken. All they're talking about is how 10 steps to be a better you. And in fact, the whole church is nothing but a social club. Why? Because Jesus has removed his influence because they departed from truth and love or both. Could he do that today? Absolutely. Could he do it to this church? Absolutely. For Ephesus, they became about doctrinal purity without love. And Jesus said, if you don't repent from that, you're going to be a social club, but not a church. The fact is, a lot of churches could continue for years with busyness, committee meetings, budget meetings, worship meetings. They could continue for years. If Jesus isn't from 100, it's not, it's not within 100 miles of that church, and they would never know the difference. Maybe you've walked in a church like that. It's cold. It's cold as an ice locker. God's not blessing it, and it's in fact dying, regardless of how busy they are. Jesus adds a blessing to this. He says, okay, if you return, if you repent, here's what, here's what the result's going to be. To the one who conquers. You see that phrase, to the one who conquers? Uh, we see it in all seven letters. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that word next week. But Jesus says to the one who repents, who conquers, who, who lives, yes, by truth and love, he says, I've got something for you. I've got a gift for you. I've got a blessing for you. I've got restoration for you. He says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Is this a works-based salvation? Is Jesus saying, oh, if you do good works, then, hey, you can come be with heaven. No. He's saying if you'll live as who you are, Jesus' followers, that you've experienced the grace of God, you've experienced his love. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says we are to be ambassadors, love and grace, that we've received grace and we are to dispense grace and love. He says you do that consistently, you stand upon truth and you love well. Well, guess what? There's going to be a day where you're going to have some rest. There's going to be a day that you're going to live out eternity in comfort and peace and well provided for and well loved. But right now, you got a choice to make. You can continue to be busy. You continue to do all this work. You can continue to go on and on and on and on and be busy, 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 and yet not be motivated by love. Charles Spurgeon had a phrase for that. He said, what? When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse. We've got corpses that call themselves churches all across the land. 
You have a promise for me, your pastor, or from your elders. We are going to stand upon the doctrinal truth of Scripture. We are going to stand right here. We're not moving. It does not matter what attacks come from the culture. We are going to stand right here. We're not moving from it. I've got good men around me, and we're together on what God's Word says. We have been for a long time. Here we will stand, and here we will not move, period. But, church, we can be doctrinally sound, but devoid of love. We need to be just as focused on our love for the community and our love for Jesus as we are of doctrinal purity, making sure that we know what is right and what is wrong, and taking a stand that we've got to be just as diligent in loving that person we disagree with as we are telling them why we disagree. Here's a question for you to consider as we move into a time of worship, response, to help you listen to the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this question. That person out there in culture, whatever lifestyle it is, you fill in the blank. Whatever they believe, however they're living, everything about their life is completely in opposition to God's word and what you believe. And a matter of fact, that person may have even lobbed some, well, some very unfriendly things towards you on social media. Maybe they don't really care for you that much because they think you hate. By the way, did you know that our culture at large now, you know what they believe about the church? You know what postmodern think, thinking is about the church right now? That we hate everybody. We hate everybody. Let's don't give them more reasons to believe that, okay? Going back to that person in your mind, that person that you, you couldn't, there might be only a one or two things that you could even agree on if that. Let me ask you a question here. Would you be willing to invite that person over to your house for a barbecue? where you spend eight hours at the smoker smoking a nice Boston butt, and man, you've, prov you've provided a big old meal for the, sing for the singular focus of inviting this person that you completely disagree with into your home to share a meal. Would you be willing to do that? Well, guess what? It's what Jesus did over and over and over again. When we look at the early church, what do we see them doing? Exactly the same thing. So if there's a catch in your spirit right there, if there's a catch right there, it's like, oh, man, I'm wrestling with that. Well, in this closing moments, and I'm talking to disciples of Jesus here, that catch that's in your spirit, maybe, maybe it is because that you're so against that, whatever that is, doctrinal purity, good thing, we can no longer love the person. As a matter of fact, maybe the person has become an enemy. Maybe in your mind, they're an enemy. Ephesus had plenty of enemies. Jesus said, are you loving your enemies? Loving them enough that where you would actually sit down and have a meal with them? Let's wrestle with that as we sing the song and as we worship together. And if you have a need to repent, if you have a need to have a change of heart, you need to do that well, publicly, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to do that. Father in heaven, your word is perfect and pure, and uh, I pray that the church of Ephesus could be a model for us that we would not follow suit. Well, I'm thankful for the men and women in this church who are leaders who know right from wrong, know what is truth, and can, and can spot error. But Lord, my prayer for us, myself included, our staff, 
is that because of the attacks that we're under, and we've had to face many, the Father, my heart and the heart of our leaders would not go back in, into a place of well, just cold indifference. Father, I believe that maybe some here in this room and watching online who've put their faith in you, but when they look back, they see that they've, gone, that they've grown rather cold. They know right from wrong, but they just don't love. And Father, it's been so long that they've even forgotten what that's like. It's impacting their marriage. It's impacting their parenting. It's impacting the way they show up to their jobs, their employers. It's spilling out everywhere. And Father, they know something's wrong. They know that something's not right, but they haven't realized till today that it was a lack of love. Father, for the lost as well, I believe that what they want more than anything else is to be loved. They strip away all the life choices and all the things going on in their life. If we get it down to just the bare minimum, they simply want to be loved. And Lord, your love is such that you laid down your life for us. Lord, I believe that demands a response this morning. Have your will in your way. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring to our attention places in our heart where there's, there's just something wrong. And Father, that we would respond in obedience. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand this morning in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.